sermons. Well, we finished our scripture reading last week in Hebrews, and now we are going to start in the book of Luke. So if you'd like to follow along with me, uh, I started um, prematurely a couple weeks ago when we didn't finish Hebrews. So last week I went back and finished the latter half of the last chapter of Hebrews in 13. So we're going to start now in Luke. I'm going to read verses 1 um, through somewhere around 20. The word of the Lord says, <clears throat> Inasmuch as a Many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. For your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you the good news, this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at the delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We now come to our catechism section of the service. So inside your bulletin, you'll see catechism question number four. Uh, We finished the section of the Baptist catechism 
uh, that deals with the final judgment. And now we go into a section, a rather large section of the catechism on man's duty. And this opening question will introduce the idea on what man's duty is. And then this goes into uh, the majority, the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the section is, deals with the moral law or the Ten Commandments. So as we do each week, I'll say the question, and then everyone in unison will say the answer together. Question 44. What is the duty which God requires of man? Answer. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. So there's many texts, simple answer. What does God require of man? This is all mankind. What does God require? And the answer is that he requires obedience to his revealed will. So there's a key uh, there's a key section, or there's a key word in that, and that's revealed will. And there's a couple of texts here. Uh, psalm 119, all, the whole, much of that psalm deals with this idea. It says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So the idea that God gives us a revealed will, this is the opening section that sort of introduces what the moral law is, which is the basis on what man's duty is uh, to God. And so God commands every man everywhere uh, to be obedient to what he said, and that's in his word. Uh, Now, the Baptist Catechism doesn't differentiate, doesn't go through as the uh, Second London Baptist Confession uh, goes through and differentiates the different laws that God gave from the moral law to the civil law, uh, the Levitical laws, and how God dealt with those uh, with his people in the past and how the moral law is a forever, uh, uh, forever law uh, that all men ought to obey. Uh, suffice to say, though, God requires us to obey his revealed will, and right now his revealed will has been canonized in Scripture. So we don't have to look for things outside of Scripture that God's commanding us to do. We have everything revealed in Scripture. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2 says, In times past, God in many ways spoke in many different ways in, through the prophets, uh, through visions and dreams, uh, but now he has spoken through his Son. And that is enshrined in the pages of Scripture. So God has spoken, past tense, has given us the final revelation, and that is what we are to obey, or what we, to are, what we are to base all of our obedience upon the revealed will of God. Amen? Amen. Hymn number 116, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Let's stand again in worship. <clears throat> Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your heart, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. 
Jesus the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail, he rules o'er earth and hell. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus. Give, lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again. I say, rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope, for Christ the Judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say. Rejoice. Amen. Wonderful hymn. Does anyone not have a hymn book? Yes. Could someone please? Uh, there you go. So sorry, sir. There you go. Well, hymn number 42 is our next hymn. You may know this hymn or you may not. It's not really that difficult, so do the best you can. Lyrically, it is a powerful song, Our Great God. Let's sing it together. Hymn 42, Our Great God. <clears throat> Eternal God, unchanging, mysterious and unknown. Your boundless love, unfailing in grace and mercy shown. Bright seraphim in ceaseless flight around your glorious throne. They raise their voices day and night in praise to you alone. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Lord, we are weak and frail and are helpless in the storm. Surround us with your angels and hold us in your arms. Our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasure is our harm. Rise up, 
O Lord, and he will flee before our sovereign God. Hallelujah! Glory be to our great God. Hallelujah! Glory be to our great God. Let every creature in the sea and every flying bird let every mountain, every field, and valley of the earth. Let all the moon and all the stars in all the universe sing praises to the living God who rules them by his word. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. Beautiful hymn, thank you. You be seated. <clears throat> Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy king. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for
Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor David, Miss Pat. That song, Our Great God, that's a difficult song. Y'all did very well. That was great. That's one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorites there. So oh, a couple more announcements before we get started. Uh, we have a Bible study each Lord's Day at 3 p.m. to 3.30. Right now we're going through each book of the Bible uh, and have an overview, the theological themes, uh, settings, that sort of thing. So we want to invite you to that if you're able to make that at 3 o'clock. So I just want to make sure that that's on everyone's radar. Um, also, please keep uh, the Price family, Benjamin, Sarah, and their family. We have these cards out there on the welcome table. Please pick one of these up so that you can be in prayer for them. Uh, so Sarah Price is Edie Stroud's daughter and her family that are raising funds to go into the mission field to Uganda. Uh, they've been there before. They have a heart for the people. They came and spoke uh, a couple months ago. And so please be in prayer for them. If the Lord lays on your heart to help them financially, uh, it has a website there to go do that. And then also please pray for Sue and Charles Jenkins. Uh, who they just left this past, or yesterday, actually. Uh, They are going back to the mission field where they're translators. They've been translators for decades, and we were able to have them over along with their friends, the Kims, who are here today uh, on this past week, and just to hear stories um, on them translating the Bible into native languages to unreached people groups is just amazing and fascinating. Uh, And we thank the Lord that that he does that work through ordinary people. So the Jenkins are going back to Thailand. It's about a 20-hour trip uh, from the flights and the drives and everything like that. So please keep them in prayer as they'll be on the mission field, I think probably for at least the next 8 to 10 months uh, before they're coming back. And then, of course, they plan to be out there for years, so as the Lord leads. So please keep them in prayer as well. Well, open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to wrap up the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the last Beatitude here, Beatitude number 8. And today we're going to look at the idea and the topic of persecution. Uh, Persecution. So read along with me. I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 and 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now, God, as I preach your word, that the power of your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us. Father, that... Your word would not return void, God, but that it would go forth accurately, boldly. And, Father, that it would do its work, God, to comfort us, convict us, challenge us, conform us to the image of Christ, we pray. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Well, persecution of the believer is not something new. It's been happening since the garden, and it's been happening throughout the ages, has it not? Christianity is often synonymous with persecution. Uh, It it even is happening now in our modern-day culture in other countries. There's modern-day Christians being persecuted for the sake of their faith. Now, I venture to say that us here in the United States, unless you've spent time in other countries, we don't truly know what it's like to suffer severe persecution as many of our brethren do in other countries. I mean, just the other night when we had the Jenkins and the Kims over, we were 
Uh, the Jenkins shared a story of a friend, a partner that they had that was captured and killed for their faith back in the 90s. Uh, so it's very real. It's happening now. It's happened throughout the ages. You go back and look 500 years ago in the, the tremendous suffering during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, you know, you had the grotesque type of uh, persecution upon the church where you had beheadings and you had people lit on fire as it seemed was common throughout the day. And then you go back even further to the early church and the the persecution that they suffered and, and under the hands of Nero, where Nero would do absolutely egregious and sick things to Christians because of their faith. So the idea of persecution, uh, as I said, is often and should be synonymous with Christianity. John Calvin, in speaking of the condition of persecution, said this, quote, we cannot be Christ's, shol- sol- we cannot be Christ's sh- soldiers on any other condition than to have the greater part of the world rising in hostility against us and pursuing us even to death. The state of this matter is this. Satan, the prince of the world, will never cease to fill his followers with rage to carry on hostilities against the members of Christ. John Calvin said that in his Institutes of uh, Christianity, in his commentary. And so here in our text, we're introduced with this idea from our Lord and Savior on the idea of persecution. So before we dive into the text, it's important that we look at how did we get here. There's eight Beatitudes. This is the final one. How did we get here leading up to this? And there's some very important distinctions that we want to draw from this Beatitude from the first seven. Uh, And so let's look at these. First, we have, as I've mentioned before, there's a general outline and a progression in the Beatitudes. The first two Beatitudes, starting at verse 3 and verse 4, have to deal with the inner working of salvation. Because all of these Beatitudes, Jesus is describing the true nature of a Christian, the true nature of a believer. He's given a description on what a true disciple of his would look like in the world. So the first two Beatitudes are the inner workings of salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. This is what God does internally to a sinner when he takes the blinders off and, and allows them to see how utterly sinful they have become and, they, uh, and how sinful they are so that they would mourn for their sin. And then the next Beatitudes, Beatitudes 3 through 7, which is verses 4 through 8, have to deal with the outworking of salvation because God brings a sinner to the realization that they're poor in spirit, that they mourn over their sin. They become meek and gentle. They become people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They become merciful people. They become pure in heart, meaning they have a single devotion for the glory of God and obedience to Christ. And they become peacemakers. And that's where I left off last week. If you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. That's an outworking of the believer. They become a peacemaker, and we learned what that means in the biblical context and what Jesus means here. So finally, we come to this last beatitude. As Jesus has given us a description of a true Christian, 
This beatitude, friends, is no different. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I want us to understand that this is not a separate beatitude, like only some Christians will get persecuted. Uh, He's describing Christianity as a whole. Okay, So that's the first truth that we can draw from this, is that true Christians will be persecuted. Maybe not to the same level as others are in other countries or other ages, but Christians will be persecuted for their faith. There are no exceptions to this. Now, if we look at our text, Jesus ends where he begins. The first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for what? Look at your Bible. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, look where he ends in the last beatitude. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for what? For theirs is the kingdom of God. It's the same exact terminology, same words in the original language. He ends where he begins. Now, the next two verses after verse 10 is sort of an exposition of persecution. It's not additional beatitudes. This is the last beatitude. And he ends where he begins. Theirs is the kingdom of God, meaning these are my true disciples. The ones that are in the kingdom of heaven are the ones who would be persecuted. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's using the same terminology here in the last beatitude as he used in the same beatitude. He's making the point that these are the ones who are truly in the kingdom of God. And persecution is one of those descriptions. In the, the way that I outlined this is, as I mentioned, you had the inner work in a salvation, beatitude one, two, 1 and 2, the outwork in a salvation, Well, this last beatitude is what I call the consequence of salvation. The consequence of salvation. Because if you look at the progression of the beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and then they become those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They become meek people. They become merciful people. And then they become peacemakers. You remember what I talked about last week? Those who go out and desire and seek for men to be at peace with God and to be at peace among men. Remember, we talked about the vertical peace and the horizontal peace. Well, when all of that happens, friends, when Christians are walking in the Beatitudes, when God is sanctifying you and me to become and to grow in these attributes, then the thing that follows, the consequence, is not praise from men. It's not praise from the world. It's not exaltation from the world's standards. It's persecution. It's persecution. All the Beatitudes uh, up to this point speak to the inner working of the Christian or the outworking of the Christian. Uh, and, uh, another way to describe this is that all the Beatitudes up to this point are something actively, the, the Christian is actively doing something or yearning for something. Okay? It, it's, it's active, but this beatitude's in the passive. They're being acted upon, and that's a distinction, and it's a summation, or as I said, it's a consequence of the first seven beatitudes. This is what happens to a true Christian. When, when one's walking and exhibiting these beatitudes, they are persecuted. 
<clears throat> but we have to clarify what persecution is, okay? So I want to give you, as I've done before in these Beatitudes, I want to give you the negative first and then the positive. What this persecution is not, and then what it is in the positive. So first thing, persecution is not trials or temptations, okay? They're not trials or temptations, which we're promised to have. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but do not fear, for I have overcome the world. So they could come hand in hand, but persecution is not necessarily a trial that you're going through or a temptation, which we are promised to have, and we're even, we're even commanded to count it all joy, James 1. Count it all joy when you experience various trials and temptations. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The persecution that Jesus references here is not when people revile you because you're just being a jerk or being arrogant or being self-righteous in your Christianity. That's not the persecution that Jesus is talking about here. Okay, oftentimes, and I've seen this, that it seems like some believers want to go out and find persecution, so they just go out and to be a jerk to somebody, and then when they are reviled, they're like, oh, I'm getting persecuted. Okay? That's not the persecution that Jesus is talking about here. Not being reviled or attacked because you're being unkind. And I venture to say persecution is not being reviled or attacked for the sake of your political positions or political activism. And I would say it depends. And I would say maybe. All right. Uh, In the way by which, and we're going to get through this later, but if you're standing for the truth of God in a political sense or in a political environment and you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, yes, persecution. But if you are being persecuted for your political ideology separated from the truth and righteousness of God, then that's not the type of persecution that Jesus is talking about here. You get the difference? Okay, I've been involved in, the, in much political activity, and I can tell you where there's political activity, where you're standing on righteousness, and you're standing on Christ as king, and you're proclaiming the truth of God to, to the civil magistrate. Uh, that's one thing. And then I've been in other things where you're, you're just on the side of something you want to see changed and maybe good, bad, or indifferent, but it's divorced from the word of God. And that type of antagonistic towards you, you're not being persecuted in the sense of what Jesus is talking about here. So there is a distinction there. Jesus is not talking about those types of what we might think of persecution. So what is persecution? If we look at the word in the original language, the word just by itself means to be driven away, pursued, harassed, or mistreated. That's in a general sense. So we could be persecuted for things that don't apply to what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It's not for any reason we're being persecuted here. Jesus doesn't give this blessing upon you and I for being persecuted for any reason. He gives a specific reason. Look at the text. He said, blessed are you, or blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of of righteousness. And then in verse 10, he says, for, the, for my sake, blessed are those who've been persecuted uh, for the sake of righteousness, excuse me. And then verse 11 says, because of me. 
So there's a specific type of persecution that our Lord is pronouncing a blessing upon. And that's those who have been persecuted because of, for the sake of, Jesus and his righteousness. And the Apostle Peter put it this way. He basically said the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then just one chapter over, chapter 4, verse 14 of the same epistle, Peter says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Peter here just says the exact two things that Jesus says. Blessed are you who are persecuted for one, the sake of righteousness. Number two, because of him, which are one and the same in my eyes, because Jesus represents our righteousness. So I want to ask you a question today, friends, brothers and sisters. Are you a persecuted Christian? Are you a Christian who suffers persecution? Now, again, we live in America where the persecution that we will face is nothing like others have and will face in other parts of the world. Okay, so I'm not asking you, are you being persecuted to the point of death? That's not what I'm asking you. But I am asking you, have you been mistreated? Have you been reviled? Have you been spoken all kinds of evil against you for the sake of righteousness? For the sake of Jesus, your Lord and Savior? We don't really know what it's like, most of us, to suffer persecution in this, uh, in this world, like the first century Christians did, or like Christians did during the time of the Reformation, or even as many of our Christian brothers do in closed communist countries. But nonetheless, brothers and sisters, Christians are still marked. They're described here, and they're marked by suffering persecution. This is a description given by our Lord of a true believer. So are you a persecuted Christian? And if you look at verse 11, the exposition for what persecution is, he gives it, He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Are you a persecuted Christian? Do you have people falsely say things about you because of your profession in Christ, because of your righteous living? Well, I want to go another angle with this. I want to look at the origins of persecution. Uh, Before we look at the other aspects of persecution, uh, such as the reasons why and our response, I want to look at the origin. Where is this persecution coming from? And where should we expect it here in our day? Well, if you look at verse 12, Jesus gives us a little inclination on where the origin of persecution is, where he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Who's Jesus talking to? Primarily you have the disciples, but you also have crowds around him. So primarily he's telling the disciples the same way they prosecuted the prophets who were before you. So who is the they that Jesus is talking about to his disciples? Well, he gives us the they in Matthew 23. And if you look at Matthew 23, this is the part of 
the text where Jesus is pronouncing woes upon the Pharisees because they're like whitewashed tombs, uh, because they clean the outside of the cup and not the inside of the cup. But look at, look at Matthew 23, and let's start at verse 29. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then, Jesus says, the measure of guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Do you understand the indictment here that Jesus gives upon the Pharisees? He says, you are guilty of all of the righteous blood that was shed from the very first in Abel to the blood of the prophets, and he gives some examples here. You know, it's interesting, historically, most of the Christian persecution often comes from the visible church. This is where the persecution came from Jesus. Who, who persecuted him? It was the Pharisees. It was the religious system of the world. Who persecuted the Apostle Paul? It was the religious system. It was the the Pharisees and the Jews were the ones who uh, persecuted Paul. And now Jesus is laying the guilt of all of the bloodshed from Abel down through the prophets and laying that guilt upon the Pharisees that they were guilty. Some of the worst persecution... Not even from Paul, you have Paul, you have the apostles, but throughout the ages, as I mentioned some of those examples earlier, much of the persecution has come from the visible, I would say, apostate church. It's come from religious apostate organizations. You got the Puritans. After the Reformation, who were the Puritans persecuted by? Many of them were kicked out of the churches. As I mentioned, Jesus, Paul, the prophets, they were all persecuted by the religious. And friends, as Jesus said in the text in Matthew 23, this all started from the blood of righteous Abel. Cain killed Abel. Have you ever thought about that was the first persecution after God pronounced judgment upon mankind? And in 1 John 3.12, the Apostle John even says it this way, as speaking of love, he says, Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for, that, and for what reason did he slay him? He asked this question, Why did Cain kill Abel? And the answer is because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So because Abel's actions and his works were, 
were righteous. It caused enough anger in Cain to persecute in the family of God, Abel to the point of death and killed him, slew him because his brother's actions were righteous and it convicted him that his actions were unrighteous. He didn't like that. That's where persecution started, friends. And I want to deviate just a little bit. I think it's important. Go to Revelation 17 with me. Revelation chapter 17. We're going to look at a couple of texts. The idea of where does perse- what's the root of persecution? What's the origination of persecution? Where does it originate? We get some insights here. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 17 Chapter 17 and 18 deals with the fall of Babylon. Now, I'm not going to go into the perspectives on who or what Babylon is. There have been many perspectives offered. That's not the point of going here. But look at verse 6. It says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now look at chapter 18, verse 24. So this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints. It's a euphemism for the shedding of the blood of the righteous saints. Now look at chapter 18, verse 24. Again, this is still talking about Babylon, the fall of Babylon, this great, this great and mighty city. And in verse 24, it says, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all who have been slain on earth. Now, Babylon, as I mentioned, has been brought forth by many theologians and many different, uh, many different thoughts on what Babylon represents. There's some text about Babylon being on seven hills, so both Rome and Jerusalem have been uh, thought of as maybe that's Babylon, okay? Uh, Rome's Babylon, uh, Jerusalem, that's been brought forth. Now, the interesting part about that is that if there's an, if John wrote Revelation before the fall of Jerusalem, then Jerusalem would make sense. If he wrote Revelation after the fall of Jerusalem, Jerusalem would not make sense, okay? But the way that I looked at this is, look, it says that in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints of all who had been slain on the earth. And then Jesus indicts the same thing on the Pharisees. So the way that I have taken this is that Babylon could represent the religious system in the world that God destroys here in Revelation. Not necessarily a specific city, not necessarily a specific physical location, but if you think about all of the Uh, all of the martyrs that have been killed for their faith throughout the ages, you can't attribute that to one specific religion. You can't attribute it it to one specific city or organization. Uh, But you can contribute it to the worldly system, the world religious uh, system of the world, which I believe is guilty of persecution throughout history. Now, I could be wrong on that. I'm not dogmatic about that, but I thought we'd just venture over there just to kind of see that if we look at all of the martyrs, as I mentioned, all of those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of Jesus Christ, doesn't it always come from some false form of religion? Whether it's apostate Christianity, 
whether it's a whole another type of pagan idol worshipers, it always comes from the world's false religious system. So that's what we need to be aware about, that when we grow in Christ-likeness and when we grow in righteousness, when we grow in love for others, both word and deed, we will invite, invite persecution upon ourselves, both from the religious system of the world and the visible church of God. Now, I would say much of that comes from the apostate church of God. What is the religious system of the world today? In a macro level, the religious system of the entire world today is somewhere around humanistic subjectivism, right? Right? That there's no absolute truth, everything's subjective. Uh, humanistic idea that man has the final say, man has the final authority. That is the general sense of the world's religious system today. So when you grow in your Christ-likeness, when you grow in speaking and standing up for the truth of God, that there is an absolute truth, that everything doesn't revolve around mankind, it revolves around King Christ, who created all things and will come to judge the world, that flies in the face of our religious system of the world, doesn't it? Now, I got to thinking, okay, what is the more specific religious system in America? Because America has a little bit of God, has a little bit of everything else. And I've mentioned this before, but this came to mind. It's called moralistic therapeutic de- uh, deism. You've heard me say that every now and again a couple years. If you don't know what it means, uh, look it up. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is what I believe is the primary religious system in our country. And this is the religious system where the persecution upon the Christian is and will come from. Now, this term, MTD, uh, came from some work that was done about 15 years ago from some researchers. And they found that the majority of America fall into this category of moralistic therapeutic deism. And here are the five tenets, so you can understand what that means. The five tenets of MTD is this. This is where most people fall into this category in in our country. Meaning the majority of people would answer yes to these five tenets. Number one, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. You go ask ten people outside that walk by this street, the nine of them are going to say, yeah, okay, I, I agree with that. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Most people would nod to that. Okay, I agree with that. The interesting part of that where it says God wants to be good, God wants us people to be good, in this framework, MTD, good is not defined by an objective standard of truth. Good is defined by what's culturally accepted and normal. Okay, it's important. Number three, The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Wouldn't you agree that most people, in a general sense, would affirm that? Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. 
Again, friends, if I were to go out there and find 10 people to walk by, I could guarantee that seven, eight, or nine of them are going to affirm most or all of these tenets. So that's what these scholars termed moralistic, therapeutic deism. This is the religious system in our nation here, in our area, wherever you live, your neighbors, family, and friends. This is the origin of your persecution. Because once you stand for righteousness, once you speak truth, it speaks directly in the face of this framework of beliefs. And you will suffer persecution because you're not open-minded. You're narrow-minded. Okay? You're, you're hating other religions because you're saying only your religion is right. So I wanted to kind of dovetail into that so we can understand what are the origins of religion, where is the root of the religion coming from. Now, next, briefly, I want to uh, cover the reason for persecution. Why will Christians and why are Christians persecuted? As if it isn't obvious enough. Uh, Three reasons here. Number one, Jesus promises it. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. Jesus goes from the third person to the first person. Did you ever notice that in this text? Verse 10 is, blessed are those, and that's the whole beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And the last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted. But in the verse 11, then he shifts, and he says, and it's in the original language, he goes to first person. And I believe he was probably looking right at his disciples and said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus, throughout his three years with his disciples, said this on many occasions, did he not? That you would suffer and have severe persecution. So the first reason why we will suffer persecution is because Jesus promised. He promised. He said you'll be insulted, slandered, spoken evil of. And why? Verse 11, he says, because of me because of me now because of the real jesus not the cultural makeup and the false jesus you will be persecuted when the world sees the real jesus in you both in word and deed Jesus said in Matthew 10, 25, It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? He's talking to his disciples. And then in Matthew 24, 9, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Luke 21, 17, And you will be hated by all because of my name. John fifteen twenty, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And you may think, well, you know, Jesus is talking to his disciples, Mark. Like he, yeah, and the disciples suffered severe persecution, but this is not isolated to Jesus' disciples. Philippians 1, 29, Paul, talking to the church at Philippi, tells him, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. 
The context here in Philippians is suffering from the church at Philippi where they are having opposition to the gospel. And you see that in the preceding verse in in Philippians. And it's not just isolated to the church at Philippi. 2 Timothy 3.12 speaks to you and I. It says, Indeed, all who desire, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not may be persecuted. Will be persecuted. This is the promise that you and I have, friends, to all those who think they want to follow Christ. You remember Jesus said, uh, gave the idea that no builder, a builder sits down and plans if he has enough money to finish the building before he builds the building, or a general considers if he has enough troops to win the war before he goes to war. Friends, that's what it means to follow Christ. If you are not in Christ, you've got to count the cost, so to speak. Are you willing to be hated by men? Are you willing to suffer for his name? We don't need to cherry coat that. See, too many churches, too many pastors want to cherry coat the Christian walk to get people in the door, to get them, quote unquote, saved. Don't talk about the hard stuff in Christianity. Don't talk about that they may be persecuted uh, in Christianity. Just Give them the good stuff, and you can talk about the bad stuff later. If you've never listened to Ray Comfort's uh, Hell's Best Kept Secret, listen to that sermon. Because he, uses, he talks about the parables, um, he talks about Jesus' parable of the seed and the sower. And how so often Christians come, or not Christians, but non-believers get a, a feel-good message about coming to Jesus. So there's a false conversion. They come to Jesus because Jesus will help their life or whatever the false invitation is, then they suffer for being a Christian or a so-called Christian, and then they leave the church and they leave the faith because they were never Christian to begin with. And his point was, we should never sugarcoat the Christian walk. Those who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, quote, He says, true Christianity will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content, this is Ryle, he must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices in religion despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to be thought by many a fool, an enthusiast, a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, he must not marvel if some call him mad. The master says, quote, him quoting Jesus, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. So, friends, do you suffer persecution for your faith? You know, there's no such thing as a closet Christian. There's no such thing as a, as a Christian who stays in the closet for too long because the conviction of God will bring about them to where they have to be open about their Christianity. 
And so are you a persecuted Christian? Are you a persecuted Christian? See, as we see the direction of our country and we see the, the sin get deeper and deeper and, and grosser and grosser and more egregious, we have to be willing and able and we have to teach the next generation to be willing and able to be ridiculed and reviled by the world. See, when persecution comes, uh, I was reminded by this by Brother Paul Washer, when persecution comes, we, we think it's something glamorous. Uh, and, and he goes through this when he talks about persecution in America in a sermon some 10 years ago. We think it's something, oh, this is so glamorous, I'm going to persecute it for, for the sake of Christ. But in the moment of persecution, when, when the reformers were persecuted, when the Puritans were persecuted, when others are persecuted in other parts of the world, it's not glorious to them. The whole society and everyone around them looks upon them as a most hated and worthless and vile person. One that is evil in their eyes. These person that they're persecuting in the minds of the society are horrible, evil people, and they need to suffer persecution. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go through that? Are we willing to be hated by all those around us for the sake of Christ? Are we willing to be slandered for the sake of Christ? Friends, as, as the culture goes this way, I believe it was either Joel Beakey, he put it this way, or it may have been Stephen Lawson, as the culture seems to go this way, you understand if we just stay in the orthodox lane of Christianity, soon enough, the world's going to be looking at the true church as an absolute bigoted cult. You realize that, right? Because we're just staying orthodox, but the, church, the world keeps going that way, and we seem more extreme and more extreme and more extreme as the world continues down its degradation and its spiral into sin are you willing to be slandered and mistreated and to be called narrow-minded bigots are you willing to do that for the sake of christ so why are we persecuted why are christians persecuted uh, because jesus promises number two the world loves sin the world loves sin that's why we're persecuted because the world loves sin the world is in darkness and the world hates the light and doesn't want to come to the light for fear that its deeds will be exposed, as Jesus said. If you look at verse 10, it says, We will be persecuted. Blessed are those who persecuted for the sake of righteousness. This word righteousness is in regards to God's holiness and God's righteousness. So when we live a life of holiness, when we live a life of in conformance with Christ that speaks and convicts men of their sin. It's just Cain and Abel all over again. Abel's deeds were righteous. Cain's were not. Cain didn't like that, so he persecuted Abel. Living a life of holiness will cause you persecution. As I mentioned earlier in 2 Timothy, that all who desire to live a righteous life will suffer persecution. Now, if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, later, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world, right? And then he says, shine your light so that men may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, Mark, isn't that a contradiction? You're saying to live a holy life, and that's going to suffer persecution. But Jesus said, shine your light so that men may glorify your Father. Well, which is it? 
Well, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Friends, when we're walking in Christ's likeness, when we're walking in a holy life, it will convict many people of their sin and they will persecute you or it will, God will use it to draw others to him and they will see the change that God made in your life. He'll see that, wow, he, he's not like that or she's not like that anymore. She really loves God and she really wants to do the right thing. She's really humble. He's really humble. Uh, wow, maybe, maybe I should check out uh, and, and consider my life and where I am with God. So again, when you live a life of righteousness, you communicate to the world that there's an actual standard of morality. You'd agree that there's no standard of morality for the most part in our culture. When you live a life of holiness and righteousness and say, this is the word of God and this is what I'm going to hold to, the world hates that and you will be hated for it. And this comes only by living to a standard. And this is important, friends. And giving the reason for that standard, that it's what God has said. Not because, well, I just do this because it's good for me. That's a temptation. It's a, it's, it's a cop-out, quite frankly. And I've been there, too. You don't want to offend somebody, and you're asked why you do certain things or don't do certain things. And we're tempted to say, well, that's, just, well, that's what works for me, right? You ever been tempted to say that? Well, that, that's just what I, that's what I believe. Right? Because what you're doing when you say that, friends, you are, you're undercutting the, the conviction and the power of the word of God upon a sinner's life. Okay? I'm, not t- I'm not talking about ambiguous, th- uh, ambiguous things that aren't quite clear in Scripture, but I'm talking about solid standards like believing you know, a marriage is a man between man and a woman, by believing that abortion is murder, by believing, uh, like, I'm, I'm talking about clear things in Scripture. Uh, by believing that, fill in the blank, well, you know what it is, things that you have in your mind that God has said that I'm going to hold to this, okay? And we explain that, well, because God said, because God said, not because, well, that's just what I believe, okay? I want to encourage you, encourage you to avoid using that terminology because what you're doing, you're feeding into the, this subjectivism that they've already been fed all of their life. Oh, yeah, that's just their, that's their truth. Okay, that's good for them. They're not, they're not judging me. Okay, You could do it in a nice and a loving way. You know, well, I am a believer in Christ and, and uh, God has set it and God has created everything and he gets to set the rules. And so I want to obey God because he said in his word that it's wrong or that this is right. And when you do that, friends, that's what will either lead people to come to Christ or, on the flip side, it will invite persecution upon your life. Number three, the reason why we are persecuted as Christians is because the world hates Christ. The world hates Christ. The world loves sin and the world hates Christ. I've already mentioned the text You're going to be persecuted, he says in verse 11, because of me, he says. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. When we grow in conformance to Christ, when we grow in becoming more like Christ, both in our words and our deeds, do not expect the world to grow in their love of you. It's quite the opposite. They're going to grow in their hatred for you. 
Don't expect praise from men or women. Matter of fact, Jesus gave a woe upon that. In Luke 6, 26, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Friends, we got to learn to fear God more and fear man less. We got to get to the point where we don't care how men or women react. That in the most loving way, in the most graceful way, I'm going to stand upon the truth of God's word. I'm not going to deviate. And I don't care what people think of me or what people say. We got to get to where we fear God more and not seek the praises and acceptance of men and women, but look for the acceptance of God. So when you're reviled, when you're persecuted, just remember Jesus promised it, and you're persecuted because the world loves their sin and because they really hate Christ. They really, I'm telling you, they really do, okay? If you've done enough evangelism, see, there's this false idea that people don't really hate God. They just like their life and they just want to live the way they want to live, but they don't really hate God. First of all, Scripture tells us before we were in Christ, we were haters of God, okay? So when you're evangelizing, and when I've been evangelizing, and people have reviled me, I've asked them, sir, why do you hate God so much in a most loving way? Well, what does that do? Well, sometimes it gets a reaction and allows me to talk to them, and other times I'm reviled. I know they hate Christ. I know they hate God. And so that's what we have to know about the world is that the world truly, when you're living a righteous life, when you're a godly man trying to be a godly father, trying to live according to God's word, when you're living uh, as a godly woman, trying to live as God has said in his word as a godly woman, the world hates that because they hate God. You understand that? So how ought we to respond? He gives us verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. He gives two words, rejoice and be glad. Your version may say be exceedingly glad, and that's what that second word means. It means to be overcome with joy and be exceedingly glad when you're persecuted. You know, oftentimes Christians have been, uh, have been thought of as masochists, that they just love pain and they love to be persecuted because Christians rejoice when they're persecuted like the apostles in Acts 5. They walked away rejoicing that they would be found worthy of being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice and be glad. Why does he say this? For your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I will venture to say, looking back at the Beatitudes, Remember how we talked about this describes a Christian? Only a Christian can truly rejoice when they're persecuted. That is not done in the flesh, brothers and sisters. When you have people who are close to you, co-workers, family, when they revile you, when they slander your name, when they talk all kind of evil about you because of your righteous living, because of the sake of Jesus Christ, only the power of the Holy Spirit can allow you and help you to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. 
Because what do we want to do in the flesh? We want to be bitter towards them, don't we? We want to take revenge towards them, don't we? Be honest. That's what we want to do in the flesh. So only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we react in a way that God tells us to react by rejoicing. And I mentioned earlier Acts 5, 41, where they walked away rejoicing. It was Peter and the apostles. They had just gotten flogged. They got beaten for speaking the name of Christ and were told not to do it again. And they went away rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And what did they do after that? It said they kept on going from house to house speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to rejoice and be exceedingly glad because great is your reward in heaven. Friends, we have to have an eternal perspective here. Your reward is great in heaven. We need to look not at what we see here on earth. We need to look at what we see in eternity, that when we live a life in conformance to Christ and people hate us for it, they talk badly about us for it, we need to remember the eternal hope that we have, that Jesus gives us here. He gives us this promise that we have a great reward in heaven. And that's all of grace, too. It's unmerited favor. He doesn't tell us what the reward is, but it's a reward nonetheless. It's a reward nonetheless. I think the apostles' reward was that they truly did feel that they were blessed because they had been worthy to suffer shame. Have you ever thought about it like that? They thought that they, I'm worthy enough to suffer shame for Christ just as he suffered. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, if we are to live for Christ, we are to be content with living as Christ lived, as one who was despised among men. Isaiah 53, 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. This word despise means to be considered vile, to be considered utter worthless. And we are to walk as Christ walked. We are to live as Christ lived. We are to be content with that type of persecution. Are you willing to follow Christ to the point that you are considered by everyone around you as vile? Are you willing to follow Christ? If everyone around you considers you despicable, worthless, scum, not even worthy of living, are you willing to follow Christ? If, if your family turned on you, because Christ did, that's how he lived. And why did he do it? The writer of Hebrews tells us, Chapter 12, verse 2 and 3 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher, perfecter of faith, who for the joy, for the joy, friends, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ was willing to live a life to be despised among men. He was willing to, to be considered worthless, helpless, despicable. 
He was willing and he did it for the joy set before him. The joy that his father would exalt him, give him the name above all names. The joy that he would satisfy the righteous, perfect payment that you and I need in order to be secure in our eternity for the joy set before him. He did it for you if you're in Christ. Are you willing to do it for him? Are you willing to live in that way? If not, I encourage you to evaluate your heart. Ask yourself, has God truly saved me or, or am I just a product of cultural Christianity? Have I just said a sinner's prayer? Maybe you've been baptized? If you're not willing right now, if you can't honestly say that you're willing to live as Christ lived in this way, to be vile and be worthless and to be persecuted for, for your faith, then ask you, am I really saved? And seek God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of faith. Him and him alone can save you. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon his name. He said, John six thirty seven that in no wise I will cast out no one, no matter what you've done. You've turned your back on him. You've lived a life you're ashamed of. He won't cast out anybody that comes to him, but you must come with a contrite and a broken and a repentant heart and he will save you and he will give you the grace that you need to walk in this life while being reviled and persecuted amongst men amen let's pray heavenly father we thank you thank you lord jesus that you lived a life man of sorrows despised among men that you For the joy set before you, God, endured the cross. You endured a life of shame. But in the midst, God, you did it and secured our eternal salvation through your righteous life and your death on the cross. Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to not fear man so much. But, God, that we would stand for righteousness, that we would stand for truth amongst our family, our co-workers, our circle, our neighbors, whatever context you've given us, God, help us to not be ashamed of you. God, but help us to stand for the truth, come what may, and to do it in a loving and graceful and patient way. But God, help us to do it nonetheless. Father, if there's anyone here or listening, God, that are not in Christ, who, Father, are not willing, God, to suffer shame for the sake of Christ, I pray you would use this word to convict their hearts. So, Father, they would turn to you in repentance and faith and that you would save them. We thank you, Lord. I pray for everyone here, God, and those unable to be here today, God, that you would be with each and every one of them in a special way and that you, Christ, would be glorified in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 61, God me, O thou great Jehovah. Let's stand together. Guide me, O thy great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak. But thou art mighty, hold me with 
thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain whence the healing stream doth flow. Let the fire and cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thy still my strength and shield. Be thy still my strength and shield. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my ancient fear subside. Bear me through the swelling current, lead me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever give to thee. 